Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Sazen Samadhi. Beyond the exaltation, beyond all our praises, the Mahavyur Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Here in this truth, I humble and grateful to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom. Brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the sixth day of our winter seven-day session, 5th of August, 2021. And um, we can continue to read from Not I, Not Other Than I, The Life and Teachings of Russell Williams, edited by Steve Taylor. And um, yesterday we, we finished up, we were looking at the statement that um, Williams made, you are not the conditions that make you do things. And saying how um, this, if we can, if we understand this, then we can uh, not take things that happen to us so personally. And yet they feel personal enough. Eckhart Tolle talks about um, how we we create uh, a pain body out of um, things that happen to us and and how this becomes wrapped up with our identity, who we, who we think we are. Um, one of the examples that he gives us is the child mistreated by a parent who then believes uh, he must be a bad person 
to have been treated this way. And this, this view becomes part of the pain body and, and adds to the pain. Sees the, sees the world through this view. And it, it can be helpful to understand that there's a sort of t template working here. Um, the, the, you could say the delusive template of a fixed self. And then into, into that template, which is very deeply ingrained in us, um, we slot uh, the different dualisms. So good, good person, bad person, loved person, unloved person, success, failure, and, and many, many more. But they, they, they sort of, like, like um, receptors on a, on a virus, you know, they, they, um, this, this notion, this very deeply held notion of, of um, a fixed self and a fixed other uh, take the different designations that we, we um, apply to ourselves. So what feels what feels um, deeply personal is at the same time um, related back to this 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 fundamental mistake we make about the nature of things. take up part of a section called um, Fullness and Emptiness. You can maintain watchfulness in any position at any time, observing what is going on or what is not going on. The not going on is just as important as the going on, so that we can learn to appreciate nothing as well as something. You can think here of um, uh, a lot of Zen and Chan art. For instance, um, Song Dynasty land, Chinese landscape painting, where often most of the scroll, and they usually are um, vertical scrolls where this, you see this, most of the, the, the area of the scroll is blank and as important to the, the landscape depiction as where there is um, paint, uh, ink, creating the picture. Also, in a, in a lot of uh, Zen art, the um, space in in the in the artwork is is uh, integral to it, not just 
uh, a result of what is, is the shapes and forms that are in the painting or other art form. We can appreciate emptiness as well as fullness. You wouldn't think emptiness could be appreciated, would you? But it can be very important. Even in speech, if I use a language with multiple words with no gaps between, it would become incomprehensible. Between words there is a little gap, an emptiness, which brings understanding of my meaning. We don't realize how valuable emptiness is in our life of fullness. The gaps create understanding and provide a perspective. As a result, we should recognize the emptiness as much as the fullness. I think here, especially of um, people discovering that they can have space around their thoughts and emotions so that they, they can recognize them as thoughts and emotions, as, as, as um, products of our body-mind. And, and the space helps us to feel and know what's going on, but also to question the thoughts Am I sure that this is so? Because we understand that thoughts are um, impressions, interpretations. You can't argue with what we're feeling in the body because it's just what we're feeling at that moment. But um, we can question, question the narrative um, because we understand that thoughts are an interpretation. They're a view um, from a point of view and um, it, it's some remove from the direct experience. That's the nature of thinking. It's what makes it, makes it useful to us and also what um, uh, makes thought so often suffering producing. When we move along the whole process meditatively, meditatively, we arrive at a great emptiness, unbounded. But the emptiness is still full. Strange, isn't it? The emptiness is full. When we begin to see things differently, then we begin to see things differently. It makes sense and yet it is nonsense in the normal world. We know these things innately and we have to open that door to innate knowing which is, of course, the source of all life. We, when we know the nature of our life, we know the nature of everything. Emptiness is full, and, and fullness is emptiness. Think here of our, our Heart Sutra that we've been chanting every day. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. So it's not like there's a realm of emptiness separate from form. Or a realm of form that is somehow not partaking of emptiness. When we know the nature of our life, we know the nature of everything. We are experiencing it now, this very moment. There is a body here, a body there. 
bodies all around the room, but somehow here we are bound together in this subtle feeling that we are all one. So the emptiness becomes full, and there is only the one, with many manifestations within it. And it is very comfortable to recognize, isn't it? More comfortable than it was before. And this is not what we are really seeking in the world. And it, is this not what we are really seeking in the world? To be at home within oneself and within our universe? It says there is only the one with many manifestations within it. There's a, there's a koan which asks this question. All things return to the one. Where does the one return to? He goes on to say how isn't what we're really seeking a sense of being at home in the world? Isn't this what we've been looking for all the time? No, no matter what else we do, he says, we tell ourselves, if I do this, I will be a bit happier. Um, Shanti Deva, I think it is, or it could be Milarepa, says we spend huge amounts of our energy uh, trying to be happier when in fact we're, we're so often taking ourselves in the opposite direction to happiness. Because of our um, incomplete understanding of things. But it's not so complicated as, as um, Russell Williams says, says here. To be at home in the world, it's, it's straightforward, isn't it? To be at ease. He says, we seek well-being in the wrong place, in the wrong form. It is not a worldly thing, it is an unworldly thing. The more unworldly we become in this sense, the better off we become. To perhaps interpret what he means by worldly. I think he means um, attaching. Worldly is where we attach to the things of the world and seek, seek fulfillment from them when they are unreliable. And then he says the more worldly, unworldly we become in this sense, the better off we become. He's talking about becoming more uh, pure-hearted in the sense of non-grasping. Being able to let go not relying on what is unreliable. And somebody asks him about um, meditation and he, he gives a little um, snippet of a guided meditation which I'll just summarize because I um, don't want to uh, directly kind of interfere with what people are doing right now in their in their practice but he makes some some helpful points in in describing this he he um, describes basically it's it's a breath practice um, focusing on the on the belly and the expansion and and contraction of the of that area 
which is which he describes being like a balloon. He says the body just breathes as it wants to, regardless of how you think it ought to breathe. Just observe this expansion and contraction. And he goes on to talk about how this this has a very calming effect, this focus on the breath. And uh, he suggests that people emphasize this when doing breath practice, this uh, peaceful quality that it can have uh, with this gentle movement of the belly in the center of the body. describes it as absence of agitation. Then he adds something that that I think is very helpful. He says, And within the peace, would you say that there is a kind of heartfelt warmth of feeling? It feels homely, as though you belong there, and it is though it were a light. So to bring, um, to, bring to our um, meditation practice, whatever it is, um, this, this sense of warmth, warmth of feeling, And then also he associates it with with a light. He says, can you sense that that warm, peaceful feeling beginning um, to emanate beyond this balloon through the rest of your body, all on its own without any willfulness, so that the physical body becomes the embodiment of this still warmth, this homely feeling, or at-home feeling maybe we would say. And if you if you think about it a minute for the, with the breath, it is permeating your whole body, in that the oxygen that you breathe in is being is going to every part of your body. And then he he um, after after guiding people through this sort of uh, emanating of the of the this warmth. Um, he suggests that they feel it, see if they can feel it going beyond the body and reaching out in all the directions. As I think it says in our, in our Metta Sutta about um, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. And then he, he, he brings people back into just this this moment's quite brief, his description. But I think it is an, an important thing to, to, to check that we're bringing to a practice, um, even towards our own, our own unruly and perhaps unsettling emotions, the sense of just warm acceptance, whatever it is that's arising. He goes on to say that you couldn't experience that peacefulness and warmth without a subtle form of feeling. He says it's not as coarse as the normal sense, but spreads further out and begins to de detect things of a deeper nature, which are always there, even though you never noticed them before. 
he says, it's almost as though consciousness is developing such a gentle perception that you could compare it to a finger, soft and warm, touching a snowflake, sensing its nature, but so delicate that the flake doesn't melt. Um, Master Sheng Yin describes practices um, catching a feather on a fan. Again, something very delicate. Subtle. I think here of, of in his story, his life story, where he talks about um, working with the horses and, and rubbing the horse's entire body with his hands, their, their bellies and their legs and their um, the hooves, the heads, this, this, the power of touch. Very different from grasping. We should endeavor to develop that type of consciousness with a similar expansive nature in a peripheral sense, the whole 180 degrees, the whole 360 degrees, rather than just a, a limited point. We, we can bring, bring our habitual grasping to the practice. We, we all experience this, and it can be very frustrating to see it. But to, to realize, to remind ourselves that our our practice is not a fight. We're not trying to wrestle move or the breath to the ground. But if we are going to use an image for it, uh, it's more like a dance. Making, making our best effort to, to step in, in tune with our true nature. This is what gradually happens as we become more familiar with this mode. Nothing will happen with meditation by itself. As you experience this gentleness of perception of consciousness, you find that at any point in time in your daily life, you'll pick up on things that you never noticed before. This is where you begin to see the nature of things. When it happens in your daily living now, as opposed to in meditation, there is a reality and we begin to see that what we perceive as normal is false. This is talking about kind of conventional reality. All the assumptions that are made about what is important and what is not important. And this is how we free ourselves, by seeing the nature of things. It is not by any great effort, but by letting go that we achieve this. He's making a very important point about it's not just what we do on the mat, but it's how we take that experience into our lives and make it a part of our everyday lives. And this, is, this becomes um, more important as we... Um, head towards coming out of Sishin to to see the practice as a as a um, uh, something integrated and thoroughgoing, not just just uh, 
seven days of intense work and then back to things as they were. But but actually looking at our lives in ways in which we can we can uh, make it make this this concentration and awareness and space around our thoughts and feelings active in our daily existence, in our relationships. Out of this we begin to trust that deeper level of ourselves rather than the superficiality. In these moments we become so expanded that we reach infinity, become boundless. This is the boundlessness of space. That is how uh, big consciousness is, and we are only a small part of it in our manifest form, but in real reality we are part of the whole. Master Dogen would, would uh, talk about big mind, Daishin. It's, um, it's uh, so easy for us to um, forget that we're part of the this the, the whole. Uh, Fritjof Capra said, um, "As we penetrate into matter, nature does not show us any isolated building blocks, but rather appears as a complicated web of relations between the various parts in, of the whole. These relations always include the observer in an essential way." The properties of any atomic object can only be understood in terms of the object's interaction with the observer. In atomic physics, we can never speak of nature without at the same time speaking about ourselves. It, it's, it's, um, it's the same for us in our, in our lives. We, we can't talk about anything without uh, including ourselves, the one who experiences. If we were to put it in more um, Buddhist terms, Yungchia um, said, One nature completely penetrates all natures. One dharma fully contains all dharmas. One moon universally reflects in all the waters. All those moons appearing in all those waters are merged in that one moon. The dharmakaya of the, all the Buddhas enter my own nature. My nature reunites with that of all the Tathagatas. One land contains all lands. It is neither form nor mind nor karmic action. A snap of the fingers completely perfects the 84,000 teachings and in a flash three great kalpas are extinguished.
there's another section about metta. The, the recognition of peace within is the doorway that opens up for metta, the warm, homely feeling of belonging. It goes out as an emanation. If you try to hold it, you lose it. It's because there is nobody there that can hold it, that it can expand. Then somebody in the, um, in there when he's talking says, I experience it as if it were a very gentle golden light that pervades the whole area. And he responds, all energies have a degree of light about them. The golden light is of course a manifestation of the meta aspect, the true love which is union, not separation. The purpose of repeatedly visiting there is to become more familiar with allowing an expansion of consciousness openly and in every aspect of your life. Consciousness is the be-all and the end-all, so we should allow it to dissolve us into its very essence, giving up self, dissolving into that greatness. Um, we don't use this, this term as we've been talking before, consciousness so much, but if we put in their mind, then it becomes perhaps um, easier for us to understand. Mind is the be-all and the end-all, so we should allow it to dissolve us into its very essence. He goes on to say that he doesn't believe in long meditation practices, such as Sishin. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's talking here about specifically about metta. And uh, what he suggests is short bouts, um, 10 or 15 minutes. But then he also adds that it's, good, it's a good idea to do it seven times a day. Uh, most of us, most of the, each week probably don't have the um, the option to do this, but some people may want to try it. He says, um, do it seven times a day until you have a continuum going all the time, rather than once a day. If there's a gap, you lose the momentum, but if you keep it up every couple of hours or so, there's a continuum. Switch it on, switch it off. Learn to do that, and you'll find you have a continual flat flow all the way through, which can even penetrate through sleep as well. And there is a lot of wisdom in this because we're more likely to do it if it's for a short period of time. And if we're doing it multiple times in a day, it will begin to naturally permeate everything else that we do and become a part of, of us. And and we, we talk about, um, you know, with koans, carry it day and night. Um, but this this approach of of short periods of formal meditation through the day and night may very well uh, create the kind of uh, continuity that we're looking for in practice. In other words, not tight trying to make sure that we don't miss a moment, but a sense of understanding that the practice, um, you know, when we're not formally doing it, it's it's it sort of goes underground, and we can we can bring it back up to the surface when we, we turn our mind's attention to it. He gives an, an analogy from his, from his looking after horses days. He says, you could compare it to how a horse eats. Did you know a horse's stomach is only as big as a human being's? That's why it has to continually eat all day long. It doesn't chew the cud, it goes straight through. 
in the same way, meditatively, here, there, 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 throughout, we should maintain the, that quality. Yes, if we all think of ourselves as not having very big stomachs and that we have to take little bites um, all through the day, graze perhaps we could say, on our, um, our practice, whether it be metta or something else. He continues. One of the things about the world that has always amazed me is that people believe that peace means to stop fighting, but it doesn't. Peace is freedom, not a cessation of hostilities. You need more than simply an absence of aggression. You need friendship, which means giving, not taking. Receiving, perhaps, <clears throat> but not taking. You need love, which comes from down here, not from the head. Now, I don't know here whether he was pointing to his heart or to his belly. But, again, as always with him, very much um, getting us out of our heads. If everyone and everything could come down to this place of love, the world would be a totally different place. In fact, the world would not even exist anymore. Um, there'll always be conflict. It's conflict is 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 a part of life. But it's it's how we do the conflict, not trying to avoid it, which m many of us do, um, but to but to find a way to do our conflict skillfully. How do we speak our truth as we see it, but at the same time uh, be open to adjusting that truth, possibly changing our view? If when there's a conflict that both parties come to it, with that attitude of openness, then there's likely to be um, some meeting place. Otherwise, there probably won't be. So much conflict is to do with how tightly we, we um, hold on to our views. Think of the, the end of the Metta Sutta. Uh, which we we chant now in Sishin as a way of reminding ourselves to bring the a uh, a gentle loving attitude to all of our uh, practice. It says, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And and. Um, when we've looked at this this sutta, um, of course we, we interpret, interpret the end, as we mentioned before, about not being born again into this world slightly differently. In the Mahayana, we'd say it doesn't mean literally not being born necessarily, but not being born into dualism. 
being born into the world but coming from a place of no birth and no death. Not holding to fixed views. He says we, we need friendship. We need to be able to uh, make friends with our, the circumstances of our lives and the, 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 what we encounter in our minds as well. To befriend. Even those parts that we that, that frighten us, that we want to run in the opposite direction from. <coughs> Next um, section is called Freedom Through Meta, and this starts with a, a questioner saying, uh, sometimes you have a deep sense of peace and well-being that and you know that wherever you are in this world, you can connect with it. And at the same time, you send that ripple out. That same harmony can spread to all the people you come into contact with. And Russell Williams replies, I agree with that up to a point, but not wholly. You don't send the well-being out. You merely establish it within yourself. You become like the incandescent part of this bulb here. When it is lit, it just shines out in all directions. It can't not do that. So if you have that as your stable base, the meta aspect, then that is all that is there, and that is all you can give, without any words or thought. That's why it emanates throughout the whole, but you can't project it by thought. If you tried, it, it would discriminate, whereas meta is for the whole world, not for any particular individual. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. It makes no difference throughout the whole world. But you have to experience it in order to radiate it. If you are angry, anger will be sent out. If you have kind thoughts but feel anger at the same time, that won't work. You can't pour milk out of a jug that contains water. If you have meta there, it will go out of you. It is something else. If something else is there, thought won't change it. Um, it's a lot, there's a lot of um, practical wisdom here, um, but it's also a little different from what uh, is taught, for instance, in the way that the Vajrayana tradition, or parts of the Vajrayana tradition, teach the Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, of which the first and, and primary one is metta. The others are sort of aspects of metta, different aspects of metta, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy and, and equanimity. Um, because I've heard them say, and perhaps this is also in in uh, Theravadan traditions, I'm not sure, that 
just even if you don't feel loving kindness, if you you wish somebody well, then that um, intention has its effect on you and on others. And actually, Sharon Salzberg in her book on Meta gives the example of um, somebody who went to a, a long um, Meta retreat and um, was really struggling to feel loving kindness for people in her work situation where she had felt to be unseen and um, and treated poorly, and she didn't feel you know she did she did she dutifully did the 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 um, wishing well phrases, but she she didn't feel like she was getting anywhere with it really in terms of actually feeling uh, loving kindness. Uh, but then she went back to work, and that she found that the the way she related to her co-workers had shifted. coming out of that sense of intending well, benevolence. But um, Williams here is pointing to um, the fact that we, we, we can't fake this. We can't, we can't manufacture feelings. We can set intentions that we do, we do have some choice in that regard. We have choice about what we do with negative emotions that arise in us, for instance. And with practice we can create more space around them so that we can look at something and say, perhaps, say, say a, a painful mind state comes up, jealousy for instance, and we get, can get experienced enough and have enough of self-knowledge that we can we can recognize it when it comes and say, oh no, I've been down that road before. I know it's painful. And then choose not to nurture that, that feeling because we know that it is, it is uh, uh, pain-producing. And we do that for our own sake, not for somebody else's. You could, you could say it's, that's um, caring for ourselves looking after ourselves. He talks about how um, our practice can help uh, gener generates the feelings of goodwill. He says, for example, chanting will help. Where it can take us to a place where we can um, 
allow meta to flow into what we do. And then he says, eventually ego falls away. It weakens and weakens until eventually there is no desire for anything in particular. So he's talking about his own, own experience. And whatever you look at is seen as empty, hollow, void, with no identity whatsoever, and of no value at all in the world. And again, this is the, this is the, the um, world-renouncing attitude of the, the Theravada tradition. There is a greater fullness in a different area altogether. You are never wholly separate from anything. It's an interesting thing when you come to pin it down to an everyday level. We're all so used to it, the I, the you, duality. But is any sentient life, a person, animal, flower, whatever, completely separate from anything else? This I, it is mine, uh, is it mine or is it a combination of various factors coming from other people? If you meet someone who is irritated, how long before you take on the condition of being irritable? Is it yours or theirs? Or are you sharing it? And it's happening all the time as you go through the day. When you meet other people, you begin to pick up their quality. It's like going to a foreign country. After a while, you begin to pick up the language. So you can't say this is me because this me is a combination of many different factors. You can stabilize one area which is not disturbed by anything else, but even then that area still has contact with others. And even though other people's vibes don't alter this, your vibes alter that. So you will still be part of others, but working in the opposite direction. Sometimes when you meet someone, you have feelings for them. I like this person, or I'm not too keen on that person. It's not intellect, it's feeling, isn't it? Even if they don't say anything, you will pick up on their vibrations. How is it being done? Through an interchange of consciousness. So consciousness is a communicating factor between all things that can carry whatever might befall. Just uh, time is nearly up, so I just wanted to turn to, to um, a passage that uh, occurs right at the end of the, of the book. Um, and it's entitled, The End. <laughs> Remember, he's, he's um, I think, 94 when this book was published. Still teaching. My old friend, Father Time, keeps tapping me on the shoulder, saying, it's near your time. But I can't go yet. I still have things to do, I tell him, laughs. But he goes away, then he goes away again. I have to admit that there is a tendency to be drawn into a different sphere altogether, but it's not time yet. I had the opportunity of going out, but decided to stay and finish the job, and I'm going to stay until it's finished. I am getting near the end of it, though, I must admit. A couple more years or so? We shall see. I am wondering when it will just close down and then be no more. I suppose that is what will happen eventually. 
It seems that the winding down process is beginning, put it that way. Then somebody comments um, that they think there are a lot of people that are going to be following him, in other words, into death. And he says, in due course, we will all follow one another. Somebody has to go first to prepare the furniture, as you might say. I have had a purpose for a long time, and I feel I have achieved most of it. It's not completed yet, I grant you, but it is very close to it, and once it is complete, I can't see any point in staying. I am not that important anymore. There are others who can do just as well as I, though they don't know it yet. This, as, as we mentioned before, this is a, um, a lofty place uh, to be at this, um, this sense of really um, being okay, equanimous about um, extinction, looking forward to it. But for us, for all of us, all of us here in the Zendo, uh, we all still have plenty of work to do. And will have as long as we're suffering. The, the, the sources of our suffering, the deepest sources of the suffering, they don't uh, die when we die. They go on. So physical death doesn't resolve our deepest issues. Ten years, thirty years, fifty years, lifetime, in, in terms of the grand scheme of things, they're blinks of an eye. It works the other way too. In affirming faith and mind, we chant, one instant is 10,000 years. <laughs> we can experience that in Sishin when we're in pain and the bell isn't ringing. How long an instant can be. So we have a lot, a lot of work to do. Um, Guagu, the, the descendant of Sheng Yin, has commented on this. He says, self-attachment, vexations, and habitual tendencies run deep. So practitioners must work hard to experience enlightenment again and again until they can simply rest in the mind's natural state. The key is to practice diligently, but to seek no results. So we're not aiming, if we're aiming anywhere, we're not aiming at an enlightenment experience that is the be-all and end-all of things, but to have at least a tip of the tongue, a, a glimpse of um, a true mind, and then to go back and revisit that place again and again and again so that it starts to actually be functioning in the rest of our lives. So that we can rest in that as our natural state, but that doesn't happen quickly. He says, by practicing in this way, our life gradually becomes completely integrated with wisdom and compassion, and even traces of enlightenment vanish, the idea of enlightenment. We are able to offer ourselves to everyone like a lighthouse, helping all those who come our way, responding to their needs without contrivance. This is the perfection of illumination. 
you might ask, I've been practicing for 10 years now. Exactly when is this going to happen to me? The difference between delusion and enlightenment is only a moment away. In an instant, you can be free from the constructs of your identity and see through the veil of your fabrications. The difference between delusion and enlightenment is only a moment away. In an instant, you can be free from the constructs of your identity and see through the veil of your fabrications. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.